Good morning. It's good to be with you, students. Another Sunday, another opportunity for us to dive into God's Word together and see what He has for us. So find your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11 uh, today and go all the way through the end of the chapter. Um, we've been looking over the last couple of weeks uh, the first at the first two chapters of Galatians, where Paul is doing something very specific, right? He's uh, proving himself to be an apostle, that he really is an apostle of God, that he really doesn't know the gospel, right? That the gospel that he proclaims is the true one. And he's trying to prove that he really can be trusted. Remember, these false teachers were coming into the churches of Galatia and spreading these false gospels, these false teachings, and casting doubt on Paul's authority and his trustworthiness. We've seen his testimony of being delivered from a life as a self-righteous Pharisee, right? He was stopped and blinded on the road to Damascus when he saw the risen Lord. We've seen his interactions with the apostles in Jerusalem last week uh, when they extended the right hand of fellowship to him when he proclaimed the gospel that he'd been preaching to the Gentiles. Uh, they were in agreement. They were in accord that this is the true gospel, the, the message of Jesus Christ who saves sinners by his grace. Today, we're going to see a continuation of his defense of that gospel uh, and that it extends even against the hypocrisy of an apostle. So there's a, a pretty um, tense situation going on in Antioch that we'll see in just a bit between Peter and Paul. And there's a lot of things going on around that situation, uh, but hopefully we'll get to the root of it, which is uh, that all sinners come before the cross of Christ at the same level. And that they're all in need of God's grace. They're all in need of the righteousness of Jesus. They don't contribute anything to their salvation. Uh, so hopefully we'll see that uh, Paul is preserving the, the good news of the gospel from any kind of false teaching or false gospel that people may say, that people may teach, or that how people may act uh, to, to somehow teach a false gospel. So let's start this morning in uh, verse 11. We're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Galatians 2, starting in verse 11, says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, you are Father, Son, and Spirit, a gracious 
and compassionate God. You extend your mercy to sinners like me, that we might be saved from our sins, that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, I pray as we think about the truth of the gospel that is justification by faith alone in the work of Jesus, that you would give us all a renewed sense of importance and gravity to that truth, that it wouldn't be something that we just learn about and then uh, put off to the side as though it's not important, but that we would see that, Lord, your gospel is the, the root, it is the foundation on which we stand, it's the track on which we run this race called life. Lord, it's, it's everything because it brings us to you and to your presence, to your love, to your grace. So, Lord, I pray that you would help me to teach with clarity and that we all would receive your word with joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, first, we're going to see a, a couple of things, but the, the first thing we're going to see is that um, Peter's actions modeled a false gospel. If you're taking notes, that's going to be your first point this morning. Peter's actions modeled a false gospel. So Paul starts off by letting us know here in verse 11 what's coming, right? That when Peter, or Cephas, came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is not the stance of a lower apostle with delegated authority from Jerusalem. No, this is the defense of a man called by God to defend the faith. Okay, so what's going on in Antioch? What's going on in this situation? So Antioch is probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, there's probably uh, around half a million people, 500,000 people who live in Antioch. And although there was a significant Jewish minority who lived there, about 10% or 50,000 people, the vast majority was clearly Gentile. So when we think about the church of Jesus Christ in Antioch, we're, we're thinking about a group of believers who come from both Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds that the church itself was probably predominantly Gentile, although there were some Jews who came to Christ as well. So in the church in Antioch, Jew and Gentile came together to do life. They were serving together, they worshipped together, and they even ate, as we see in this scene, they ate together as a family of God. But to conservative Jews, to those who were continuing to follow the law, eating with a Gentile would have been tantamount to heresy. Right, Because Gentiles are unclean and their food is unclean. To associate with the Gentiles in this kind of way would have seemed like they were upending the law that Moses gave to them. I mean, this meal thing was a big deal. Jeremiah, a scholar, observed that in Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. In other words, Jews and Gentiles coming together would say that they are all equal in the sight of God, that they're all recipients of the same blessing, of the same grace from their master, the Lord Jesus. So the church at Antioch was practicing what they preached, that everyone is welcome in Christ at his table. So when Peter came to Antioch, he joined in that fellowship. He got to enjoy this, this unity amidst diversity. He enjoyed the, the unity that they shared, the fellowship that they shared. But then trouble came, right? We read that certain men from James came to Antioch. Now these were Jewish believers from Jerusalem that would have been appalled at witnessing this kind of mixed fellowship, this mixed eating. So when they showed up, Peter noticed, right? He noticed that these uh, believers, these Jews from Jerusalem, were coming 
And, and he was afraid. He was afraid. So he began to draw away from the Gentiles and return to the previous segregation that these people groups had lived in for so long. And how sad is that? I mean, imagine what the Gentiles must have felt like to see Peter, who was once eating with them and laughing with them, enjoying their fellowship and their company, then seeing these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem and him backing away from them, wanting nothing to do with them. I mean, how would that have felt to the Gentiles? Students, this is the fear of man. That's what Peter was caught up in in this scene. Uh, it's this idea that our main concern is, is more towards what people think about us than what, what God thinks about us. And when our main concern is what other people think about us rather than God, we're liable to make terrible decisions. Now, Phil Riken says that when the fear of people or the fear of man overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. Unless we are willing to stand up for God at work on Monday, he says, we are just pretending at church on Sunday. So it's one thing for us to say that we believe these things. It's quite another thing to live them out, right? And what we live, how we live, really is an indication of what we believe. Now we know, as Christians growing in grace, that all of us have a, a disconnect between what it is that we proclaim and that we believe what we know to be true in our hearts, and how we live, right? Because all of us sin, all of us fall short. But here's the point. When we live in the fear of man, when we live in this kind of uh, rut that gets us to where we're more concerned about what people think about us rather than what God thinks about us, it won't be long before we start to deny what God really thinks about us and what God thinks about other people. I mean, look at verse 13. It gets worse. It says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I mean, even Barnabas, this is Paul's right-hand man. He noticed that Peter, the apostle, was doing one thing and thought, well, if he's doing it, then I must follow after him. I want to I follow his example. So Peter's sin didn't just stay uh, private. It didn't just stay with himself. He caused other people to follow after him in disobedience. Now notice how Paul responds in verse 14. Peter's actions were out of step with the truth of the gospel, is what he says. And he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That sounds kind of confusing, so let's, let's break it down. He's, he's basically saying, uh, don't miss, he's, he's saying, um, you weren't worried about Jewish customs earlier, Paul, Peter, right? Like you were just eating with the Gentiles. You were eating their food. You were enjoying their fellowship. You, you, you're a Jew, but you don't live like a Jew. You live like a Gentile, right? So now that when the Jews come in, you want the Gentiles to live like Jews. You want to force them to live in a different way. How can you do this? That was Paul's rebuke to Peter. Don't miss this, students. Segregation, divisiveness, discrimination, racism, which is all wrapped up in what's going on here. All of these things are antithetical to the gospel. They are the complete opposite of what the gospel proclaims. You cannot hold the truth of the gospel alongside the belief that some people are inherently superior and inferior to other people. These two things cannot, they will not go together. So Paul says that to them. He says, look, you're, you're making this distinction between Jews and Gentiles but our main 
uh, sense of unity, our, the main reason that we're together is, is Jesus. It's the gospel. What's stronger than that? Not your heritage, not your ethnicity, not the customs that you follow. So, so why, what's going on here? Like, why is this such a big deal? Peter was telling the Gentiles in separating from them that in order to be really faithful to Jesus, in order to be a, a real Christian, they had to observe the dietary restrictions found in the law. Peter was acting as though his unity with the Gentiles was somehow a lapse in judgment. It wasn't real, it wasn't good, it wasn't right. No, what I really need to do is follow these Jewish customs, this, this law of Moses. In other words, Peter is saying what Paul argued against last week. He's saying that you have to become a Jew before you can really be a Christian. And the word force here that Paul uses in verse 14 is the same word used in verse 3 that described the demands of the false brothers when Paul was in Jerusalem. Paul's not mincing words, and Peter knows exactly what he's saying. So what can we learn from this showdown right here between Paul and Peter? Tom Schreiner uh, gives us three great applications that I think all of us need to hear. First, we need to know that all of us are capable of great sin. All of us are capable of great sin. Here is Peter, a disciple of Jesus, an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ, being rebuked for his blatant sin. So, so you and I shouldn't be surprised when our closest friends, our mentors, other students in the youth group, other people in our church, our parents, or even we ourselves, we shouldn't be surprised when all of us wind up in sin because we're genuinely new creations in Christ. That's true. But we are also growing in grace. And we're growing in grace together. So, so that's the first thing we need to get from this, that all of us fall short. All of us sin. We don't expect perfection. The second thing we need to see is that our sins affect other people. Like your disobedience, my disobedience before the Lord, is not merely a private matter. It's not something that I just will keep to myself. It's not something that's only going to affect me in ways that I would never expect. My sins, your sins, affect people around you. Peter's sin, for example, was not just a decision that put him in a bad light with Paul. No, he led other Jewish believers to join him in his sin. And he wounded the Gentile believers that now felt second-rate and insignificant. They felt like they didn't measure up to what Peter's standard was. Phil Riken, uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, says that this is another warning for the, for the contemporary church, that our behavior can undermine our belief. So it's possible, he says, for Christians to believe the gospel in their hearts and even confess it with their mouths and yet deny it with their lives. So as a church, students, our behavior, our faithfulness or unfaithfulness can damage the message that we hope to preach. So all of us are capable of great sins. Our sins affect other people. And third, all of us ought to be able to receive a rebuke. Right? To be rebuked, yes, is calling out some kind of sin in your life. But, but the, the process of rebuke is the process of discipline. Right? We all need to be disciplined at times when we're wandering away, when we're falling into faithlessness. By what we know in the course of church history and the development of the New Testament, Peter received Paul's rebuke and stopped causing division. So are we willing to be corrected? Right? If, if, 
if you're living your, you're living your life in a certain way that's full of sin, or if you have a wrong belief about something the Scripture says, are you willing to be corrected? Are you, are you teachable? Are you humble enough to know that you don't have it all together? Are you led by the Spirit enough to be able to receive His correction even when it comes through another person? Do we have brothers and sisters in our lives who love us enough to hold us accountable? Right? Do you have people in your life that can ask you really hard questions? I pray that you do. Do you listen to anyone who may have something to contribute to your sanctification? Because that's what's happening. When we receive rebukes, when we're corrected, we are growing in Christ-likeness, right? Because the things about us that are not in accordance with who God says we are is being removed and replaced with the truth of God's Word. So if I'm living in sin and I get rebuked and corrected, that lifestyle of sin is put away and my life towards Christ is, is redirected. It's, it's back on track. We need that in our lives. So students, I pray that you have people in your life who can hold you accountable. Because helping one another is a call that God gives to the whole church. It's something that we'll see later on in Galatians, especially in chapter 6. So Paul questions Peter, uh, but he isn't done. Right? Your uh, translation, my translation, uh, the, the quotation marks may end right here at verse 14. Uh, but we need to remember that in the earliest manuscripts, there were no quotation marks. So when we read quotations, uh, New Testament scholars, biblical scholars, interpreters, translators are doing the best they can to figure out where does a sentence start that someone says and where does that end. And I think there's good reason to believe that actually verses 11 all the way through 21 is Paul speaking to Peter in light of everyone around him. So when we think about this section of Galatians chapter 2, think of Paul continuing to speak right into Peter's life and, and being heard by Gentiles and Jews around him. So we saw that, that Peter's actions, uh, they, they promoted, they modeled a false gospel. But second, second, Paul's rebuke promoted the true gospel. Right, Paul's rebuke promoted the true gospel. So it's not just that Paul's going to question Peter. He's going to correct Peter's actions. Paul's rebuke promotes the true gospel. So Paul begins to elaborate here in verse 15 by saying that there is a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He says there in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So there is a real difference as it relates to the law, the customs, the culture, the ethnicity between Jews and Gentiles. Here, here's a quick application for us. Most of us watching this video are white Americans, right? And, and we have maybe uh, friendships or relationships. We might have students in our class or people in our family who are not white Americans. They may be African American or Asian American or Native American or, or something else from that. Biblical vision that, that lets us see the world around us doesn't say, well, we're all created in the image, image of God and therefore we're all the same and I'm colorblind. I don't, I don't see color. I just see the person. Well, that person that you're talking about has a body. And, and they have skin, right? And they have physical features. And so it, it's, it's wrong for us to, to, to so flatten the diversity and the creativity that God has put on this planet as it relates to human beings. No, instead we need to see 
this beautiful diversity for what it is. So when I look at my African-American brother, I can say, I see your skin and it's, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful, your culture, your heritage, it's, it's wonderful. All of our cultures need to be corrected by the gospel. But it's, it's not wrong for us to say, there are real differences here. The, the way that your family might approach a situation is different from how my family may approach a situation. And that might be because of our heritage or our ethnicity. So Paul says, look, there is a real distinction. And yet, Jewish believers, Paul says, of all people should recognize that the works of the law, that the, the law itself, the law that they received, cannot justify them. It cannot save. Only faith in Christ can do that. So Paul's saying, look, Peter, you know better. You know better than to say to these Gentiles, you know what you really need to be a Christian? You need works. You need the law. Of all people, we should know that that's impossible. That leads us to verse 16, which is probably one of the most important verses of the book because it clearly communicates the problem that the churches in Galatia are facing. It's not just the issue between Peter and Paul. It's the issue with the churches that are in Galatia. So let's look at verse 16. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The question Paul is answering is this. Do we as sinners have to do something in order to be saved? Like, do we have to do something? Do we have to contribute something? Do we have to work towards something in order to become Christians? Now, these false teachers who are going into the churches in Galatia, the Judaizers, the false brothers of earlier in chapter 2, and Peter, through his actions right now, are all telling the Gentiles, yes, there is a work that you have to do in order to be a Christian. You have to become a Jew. right? You have to be circumcised if you're a male, and you have to follow the law that Moses gives. You have to do something in order to be saved. But Paul says no. Verse 16, he says it three times, right? Over and over and over. Works of the law do not justify. Works of the law do not justify anyone. That's why Paul can say to Peter, we have believed in Christ Jesus. Right? Peter and Paul, these Jewish men, have believed in Christ for their salvation. It's not because of their works. It's not because of their righteousness. It's not because of their adherence to the law. It's not because of their circumcision. It's because of their faith in Jesus that they're Christians. That's how they became justified before God. Works of the law, our works, the righteous things that you and I could try to do, will never do it. Now there's two big theological words that we need to get clarity on before we continue in this verse. Those words are justified. We've, we've already mentioned that word before. And the word faith. So let's, let's start with faith. By faith, I mean absolute surrender to what we know to be true. All right? All of those things are important. Absolute surrender to what we know to be true. Okay? So we know the content of something. So let's just use the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for sinners rose from the dead to show that he conquered sin and death in the grave and now offers salvation, offers eternal life to everyone who would believe, to everyone who would repent of their sins and believe in him. By his grace, they can be saved. 
I have to know the content of that gospel, right? That's the intellectual aspect of it. I also have to agree that it's true, right? So I can know about things that are not true, right? Like I can know about uh, TV shows, or I can know about stories, or I can know about something that I made up in my head. Just because I have something in my brain doesn't mean that it's actually really true. So I have to know the content. I have to agree or assent and say, yes, this is true. Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did die on the cross for sinners like me. And if I believe in Him, if I repent of my sins and put my faith in Him, He really will save me, give me a new heart. He really will give me eternal life. But that's not all. Finally, we have to rest in that truth. We have to surrender our lives to the truth. And that's the anti-work, right? It's not that I'm doing anything. It's that I'm not doing anything at all. And I'm resting in the knowledge. I'm resting in faith. I'm, I'm resting with my belief aimed at Jesus. Because notice, faith is not just knowing something as true. That's not all that faith is. James tells us in his letter that the demons believe that there is one God. Like they believe that all of the things that, that God has said about himself is true. And yet, they are not saved. They are not redeemed. They are not uh, delivered from their sins. Why? Because they haven't rested. They haven't placed their faith. They haven't truly believed in that truth. They don't have faith. So that's what faith is. It's, it's absolute surrender to something that we know to be true. What about the term justified? What does it mean to justify something? Well, it means to declare it to be righteous. To, to declare it to be right or good or whole. It's a legal term. So in Christianity, you and I are justified. We are declared righteous by faith. So faith is the means. It's the instrument that declares us righteous. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done, His righteousness as the perfect Son of God is credited to us or imputed to us, and now His righteousness is our righteousness. So, so when we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in Christ, Christ declares us righteous because He gives us His righteousness. The classical Protestant understanding, so our our uh, historic tribe, Protestants, right? The understanding of justification is set forth with great clarity in a thing called the Heidelberg Catechism, something that was written hundreds of years ago, a uh, set of questions and answers, answers. If you're from Lakeview, you know about uh, the children's catechism. You know about Al's Pals and, and going to catechism class before you could become a member, before you could be baptized. This was an early catechism. Now listen to the question and answer here. It says, how are you righteous before God? And here's the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me, that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me, there's that word again, imputing to me or crediting to me His righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, 
having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Students, that's the gospel. That you would believe that Christ is offering you His righteousness. That you can give Him your sins, you can give Him your life, and that He will bring you new life. He will give you His life. And that brings us to two pretty confusing verses. Verses 17 and 18 in Galatians chapter 2. Let's just read them again. It says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Let's just stop there. Here's what Paul is saying. That's kind of a confusing verse. He's saying, If we Jews are saved through faith in Christ, which we are, and not by the law, then that means we were sinners too. He's saying just because we're Jews doesn't mean we aren't sinners or sinful. Actually, because of our belief in Christ, we're admitting we are sinful. We're sinners, just like the Gentiles. So if we go back to following the law in order to somehow earn righteousness, as Peter is doing right here, then what we're saying is that Christ is leading us back to the law after he saves us where nothing is there for us but our own sins. So God forbid that we would use Jesus as an excuse for more self-righteousness through the law. That's what Paul's saying to Peter. That's what Paul's saying to you and me. We can't come to faith in Christ and be saved and then say, I think I need to add to my salvation. I think I need to add to my righteousness. So let me do some works of the law. Let me do some things to achieve more righteousness. What you're saying then is that Jesus has led you to the law to try to be saved. But the problem is you can't obey the law and I can't obey the law. All of us will fall short of the glory of God when we try to redeem ourselves through the law. Verse 18 makes it even more clear. Paul says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Paul is saying that through the gospel, the law was torn down, right? Jesus comes in and fulfills the law so that the law no longer has power over us. We no longer see it as a means of justification. But, Paul says, Peter, if you were trying to rebuild this law and forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews, then you just wind up back in your sins. You just wind up back where you originally were, not trusting in Jesus, but trusting in yourself, trusting in your own merits, trusting in your own achievement. That misses the purpose of the law. Students, the purpose of the law that Moses gave is not to save us. The purpose of the law is to reveal your need for salvation. The purpose of the law is like a mirror, that when you look at the mirror, when you look at the law and see yourself, you will see yourself as you truly are, sinful inadequate, unable to do what God has commanded. Well, that brings us to some wonderful news. As we uh, go to the third point today in our text, the root of why justification by faith is possible for sinners. How, how is it possible that Jesus can give us his righteousness? How is it possible that he can take our sins away? We find finally, if you're taking notes, third, that all Christians are united to Christ. All Christians are united to Christ. Paul says in verse 19 that through the law, he died to the law. 
What does that mean to die to the law? John Calvin tells us that to die to the law is to renounce it, to renounce it, to be done with it, and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. Remember, that's what Paul called these false brothers a couple of verses before, that they were trying to bring Christians back into slavery. So to die to the law means that the law has no hold on us anymore. That that we're not left with our inadequacy before the law. And once Paul died to the law, he says in verse 19, now he can live to God. So he dies to the law so that he might live to God. Now Paul's life is not oriented towards his own works. It's not oriented towards his obedience to the law. It's oriented towards God himself through faith. But how did Paul, and how does any one of us, how do we die to the law? Like, how do we actually do that? How do we rid ourselves of self-righteousness? How do we get rid of this, this test in our hearts that says, I have to grade myself towards this scale? How do we do that? I don't know about you, uh, but I'm stubborn. We're stubborn people. We don't give up our track records regarding the law because we usually think we're doing pretty good. We cannot, in our sin, choose to be freed from the curse of the law. If you disobey the law even once, Moses says in Deuteronomy, then nothing is left for you but curse. All you have left is the judgment of God. So all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Our wages is death. Now the promise of obedience to the law is life and righteousness, but none of us, none of us has obeyed the law perfectly. So how can we die to the law? How can we be rid of the curse of the law? Jesus is how. Jesus, like you and me, was born under the law, as Paul writes in Galatians 4. But Jesus, unlike us, does not have any sin. So Jesus was born as a human. He was born under the law, but he was born without sin. He lived a perfect life. No sin, no disobedience, full perfection. He fulfilled the law. So whereas you and I have only curse when it comes to the law, Jesus has life and blessing because he fulfilled it. He obeyed it perfectly. But then something incredible happened. Jesus was crucified. He was put under the curse of the law by being hanged on a tree. That's, we get that from Deuteronomy. We see this later in Galatians chapter 3. There on the cross, Jesus, the perfect one, comes under the curse of the law because he's hanged on a tree. That's why he had to be crucified. And there on the cross, our sins were placed on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? Paul says in Corinthians, so that we might become the righteousness of God. His death for our life. Which leads us to one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. That's Galatians 2.20. Look at it again. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Students, when we believe in Jesus, 
when we place our faith in Him, we are united to Christ. This is called union with Christ. That you and I, as, as sinners saved by grace, now have union with Christ. So we, our sinful, law-cursed selves, have died. And now, Christ lives in us. What that means is, is that everything that's true of Jesus is now credited to us. It's now true of us. That's how we get justification, right? Jesus' righteousness is now credited to be our righteousness because we have union with Christ. Our lives that were once spiritually dead are now spiritually alive. Jesus doesn't just save us from sin, students. He saves us and gives us a life to live. And why does he do this for us? Why does he save sinners at great cost to himself? Why does he, as the Son of God, bear the wrath of God? Well, Paul tells us why. It's because of love. It's because of love. Paul's intensely personal here. Jesus died on the cross, Paul says, for me. That he loved me. He gave himself for me. His love for me alone was great enough to compel him to die on the cross. Student, brother, sister, if you're a Christian, what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20 is true for you as well. Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you. You were enough. Let that sink in that you are in Christ, that you have been redeemed, that you have been clothed in His righteousness, that you've been justified, that you've been adopted into the family of God, all because Jesus loves you. He's always loved you. So we cannot, we must not, we we will not nullify the grace of God by running back to the law. That's how Paul ends this passage. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Don't miss this. If you can earn your righteousness through the law, if you can somehow merit some achievement that gets you in, then Jesus' death was pointless. Jesus died for no reason. Because you don't need Jesus in order to be saved. You can just do the works of the law. No, the cross was the only way that you and I could be rescued from our sins. It's the only way that our wicked hearts can be redeemed. It's by grace alone that you and I can be united to Christ. So students, don't run back to the law. Don't run back to your works. Don't run to your performance or your status or your family life, or your relationships. Don't don't run back to the law. Run to Christ. Find the love and the life that He offers to anyone who will come in faith. Let's pray. Oh God, who is like You in the heavens? Who's glorious and majestic and holy? who is powerful and mighty, who is all-knowing and all-wise, who is everywhere present, who is love, 
God, you are all these and more. You are perfect in every way. And with great love, you have seen fit to save a people for yourself. And Lord, if, if that's us, if, if we are believers listening to this now, what a treasure we have to know that the God of the universe sets his affection intensely and individually on each one of us. You know every hair on our head. That in your book, all of our days were written before one of them came to pass. You've, from eternity, prepared works and prepared a life for us to walk in as a response of worship to the grace that you offer through Christ. What kind of a God would indwell sinful people by a spirit and transform them from the inside out? God, we, we thank you. We're humbled. We respond to you by praising you, your glorious name. So God, help us. Help us, first of all, to, to see the world around us. To see men and women, boys and girls around us for what they truly are. Human beings made in your image, worthy of value. God, help us not to build up walls of hostility any longer, but to tear them down through the power of the gospel. And second, God, I pray that you would help us to have this news on our lips, to let it seep into our bones, to, to cause it to change the way we move and think and live. So that if people come to us apart from Christ, we might tell them there is life to be found if you would just rest in Him. If you would place your faith in Him. God, would we be people who proclaim the gospel with our lips and with our lives. We ask that you would do it for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.